We're all missing travel right now, but you know what else we're missing? Getting more. With Priceline, you can save up to 60% on your favorite hotels, and you can also get exclusive deals on car rentals and flights. And when you save more, you can do more. More, wow, mmm, and yes! Priceline knows that every trip is a big deal. So when you're ready to book your next one, visit Priceline.com for the easiest way to get more out of it. And don't forget to download the Priceline app for even more savings. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 57 of the That's So Mets podcast. I'm your host, Connor Rogers, joining me as always with a big thumbs down. I'm actually going to give him a thumbs up because I like him. Joe DeMeo, man, uh, interesting time of year. You know, I would love to sit here and open the show and talk about maybe the Mets making a pushback for this division, maybe the Mets playing much better baseball. Or maybe the fact that there's going to be a lot to talk about no matter how they finish because of a big offseason. Or something that we're going to get into for a couple minutes, which is episode 57. Obviously, we're going to talk Johan Santana. But Thumbs Down Gate is in full effect. So, Joe, let's bring you in here. Uh, Strange times in Metsland. I'm not even going to say, like, doom and gloom or this is a circus. There are so many different emotions here. But how are you doing, dude? What's going on? I'm doing okay. I think... The Mets could be doing a lot better. Yes. <laughs> um, they, they they took two out of three from the Nationals, and no one seems to care or talk about it because we got people booing each other. And uh, it very much feels like we're doing like a fourth grade thing here on both sides. And it's, it's kind of silly. But like you said, we'll, we'll get more into it uh, as this show goes on. But yeah, we're, we're doing okay. Wish they were playing a baseball game tonight instead of just a whole day of talking about who's booing who who's putting thumbs down and I mean right you'd love to put this behind you and and hopefully that's something the Mets can do but obviously we're going to address it on today's show and we're going to read a ton of the listeners questions uh, not just about this incident but a lot of them you know obviously were about the incident a few that aren't that we'll get in here too at the end of the episode. Um, if you want to stick around after our normal show, we did get to have on Tom Schieber from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Tom is one of the lead, basically the senior curator of how the Baseball Hall of Fame brings stuff in, whether it's, you know, Tom Seaver, Mike Piazza, things along the line like that. So had a really good time talking to Tom and learning a lot more about that process, about how crazy of a process it is, uncovering items that are 100 years old, things like that. So um, if you want even more That's So Mets, we do have the interview at the end of the show. For now, like I said, we're going to get into the whole thumbs down thing. But first, episode 57, I am pretty jacked up that we actually have a great player to talk about with the number situation here. We've kind of been in the Ty Kelly phase, literally episodes 55 and 56. Uh, We had Ty Kelly along with a couple other players that you might not remember or you, you haven't thought of since they put on a Met uniform. But this guy holds a special place in Mets fandom with Johan Santana for not only... 
uh, coming in and obviously being a great teammate and doing and the, all the right things, helping so many young players that are actually some still on this roster, like Jacob Degrom. That's that's the kind of impact Johan Santana had across the board for players around him, young players around him. And while you know the acquisition, it's interesting because some people might look back on it and say, "Well, it wasn't a success because the Mets didn't win a lot with Santana." Santana was very good, and the Mets completely dominated that trade when you look at the return they had they just didn't get the rest of their team right and Santana obviously throwing the first and only no hitter in Mets history I don't know about you Joe but it is not only and this comes with the territory of rooting for quite frankly really bad franchises recently uh, it's one of my favorite sports memories of my lifetime and, and I think that you know I'll always look back at Johan Santana and say man He's one of those athletes that I would do anything to put him on a different Mets team or in a different Mets era because he was somebody that deserved a lot more wins when he was here. Johan was just a straight-up ace. I mean, there's, like, the definition of an ace. Like, very often nowadays people get labeled aces or, like, is it a number one or a number two starter? Like, Johan Santana was a full-blown ace. And he was great for the Mets, obviously started – getting some injury stuff and I mean obviously the no hitter goes without saying the only one in Mets history and something pretty interesting is Johan Santana is the last player to get traded and I mean I could be wrong but I'm like 95% sure from a lot of googling that he's the last person to get traded and then have that 72 hour negotiating window remember when that was a thing where it's oh, like yeah. oh we agree to a trade and but the trade's off if we don't have an extension in 72 hours. Imagine that's like how the Lindor trade went. And they had 72 hours to figure out 300 and something million dollars. Deadlines make so, deals, my friend. You say it all the time. Yeah, it's true. But it was it's definitely a, a crazy time. And uh, one of those, another thing about Johan that's pretty fun is when K-Rod signed with the Mets, he showed up and was just like, can I have number 57? And they were like, do you know who's on this team? <laughs> he K-Rod was not aware when he signed initially that Johan wore 57. Like I think he 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 knew Johan was on the team, but he probably didn't, you know, we're nerds talking about uniform numbers every week. I doubt most of the players do. So he was just like, "Yeah, 57 sounds good." They're like, "Yeah, I can't have that." And that's why K-Rod ended up wearing 75. He just flipped it. Man, I mean, he truly was obviously great for the Twins. He came up at age 21. And he pitched for the Twins until he was 28, coming off three consecutive All-Star seasons. Um, even in a, a year where he started 34 games and had a 2.61 ERA and won 20 games, he wasn't an All-Star that year. So when you look at it, you know, he was a guy that was ahead of the curve at times. In 2004, he was striking out almost 11 batters over nine innings, and he... He did do that in 2002, over 11. I mean, he was somebody that could just come out and strike out the side at any given moment. Obviously, no hit stuff, legitimately, in an era where, not like the one today, that you have, quite frankly, no names coming out and throwing no hitters because of the lack of contact in baseball. And Santana, you know, you said it, Joe, he definitely had the injuries, but... He came to the Mets, and at age 29, you know, he starts 34 games and pitches to a 2.53 ERA. 
And, and the Mets, he only went 16 and seven because the Mets just didn't score enough for him. But it, you know, the next year, three one three ERA, and then he was an All Star that year. And then in 2010, uh, a two nine eight ERA. I mean, he really just was so tremendous after that acquisition. And I know his body broke down, but he was also someone that. You know, like I said, had an impact in the clubhouse and on the organization and was just the ultimate pro no matter what. A two-time Cy Young winner. And and I'll close it out with this. I, like I said, just watching that no-hitter uh, was one of the one of the best feel-good moments in, in my lifetime as a Mets fan. So I did want to, you know, spend the first seven to ten minutes of this show uh, showing the appreciation for Johan Santana because... I don't think he'll ever get it because of the era of Mets baseball he played in, but I think he he really does deserve it that he came here with ridiculous expectations, right? As a guy, you know, in his prime, not in the beginning of it. He was 29 when he got to the Mets. So, you know, in his prime and eventually going to reach the end. And for those first three years, he did everything possible to live up to the expectations, which is so insanely hard in New York, especially on the mound, that you don't see a lot of guys do that for a three-year stretch, honestly. He showed up, and, you know, there's a lot of conversation now about handling New York and this, that, and the other thing. He just came in and did his thing from the word go. And he, uh, a very, very great guy. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I do have a Johan Santana story. Um it's going to sound worse than it is, but, you know, it's it, so involving my mom. We went to spring training. Me and my mom used to go to spring training every other year for a while. And if you've ever been to Port St. Lucie, in the backfields, they basically have four fields. And then there's like a walkway between them all and bleachers behind each field. And this was when Johan was coming back from an injury. We were sitting on one of the bleachers watching him throw a, a live BP. And, you know, foul balls could come from any field. And uh, all of a sudden we just hear, heads up. And naturally, when someone says heads up, what do you do? You cover your head and look down. That's what I did. So I covered my head, I looked down, and I heard a clank, the ball hitting the metal bleachers. Me, at that age, I'm like, I'm going to get this ball. So I jump up, run, grab the ball. I look at my mom. I was like, mom, I got it. And she has her hand on her head. I go, mom, what's up? She was like, I think that ball hit me. And she, ta- <laughs> she takes her hand off and there's like a puddle of blood. In oh, my head. God, dude. What? Got crushed, crushed by a foul ball. And uh, the Mets trainer comes over, all this stuff. Super, super nice and friendly. Uh, Omar Minaya and Tony Bernazard come over to te- check on her. And I'm, I know who these guys are. So I'm like. This is great. Like, she's fine. Yeah, thanks, could, mom. <laughs> yeah. My, mo- my mom's tough as hell. So, like, you know, she was fine. She was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And she's like, has blood on her hand. And uh, she's like, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. And they, like, made her go to a doctor. She had to get, I think, like, uh, two staples or something in her head. But uh, we, I'm sitting in the waiting room with one of the trainers at the time. And I'm just thinking here. I go, I feel like I we can get something out of this. Like, my mom loved David Wright. She loves all the players on the team. And I'm like, you think there's any way like you could get us to like meet any of the players? (laughs) 
I didn't I just shoot my shot. Why not? I'm sitting in a waiting room at a medical facility in Port St. Lucie with some Mets trainer. And uh, he's like, I, I'll see what I could do. He gives me his card and he said, just come down early, whatever, and then call me. All right. So I do that. We come down. I don't even tell my mom that we're going to do this. And uh, we pull down the next morning. Like she's fine, perfectly fine. And just has a couple staples in her head. And we meet up with the security guy. He's like, just wait here. And out comes Johan, Jose Reyes, oh, David man, Wright. Dude. David Wright, my mom's favorite. David Wright's my mom's favorite. And uh, K-Rod. And they came out, greeted us, meted us, said hi, took pictures with my mom. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know uh, everything about it. But Johan was super cool. Like talked to us for a couple minutes. And that's my Johan story. It involved my mom. My mom had to go through a little uh, physical pain for it, but hell, it was enjoyable. That is, I'm glad your mom was okay, first and foremost. Yeah. And the fact that, number one, that was really cool that the trainer made that happen. And the fact that when those things happen, dude, especially in today's era, I feel like, not always, but most of the time, they send out, like, the utility guy or the backup catcher. Or, like, the long reliever. The yeah. fact that, like, there's just dudes out there, and David Wright was obviously one of them. Obviously, Johan Santana, that's why I talked so glowingly of him, not just on the field, off the field. They just always went above and beyond and did things that when you reach, like, a lot of people don't realize, when you reach that star status in a clubhouse or in an NFL locker room, wherever you are, you don't have to do those things. Like if somebody comes up to you and a lot of players understandably like say, no, I'm busy. I got to go get treatment. That's often what they'll say. Like that shows that kind of era of guys that go above and beyond. Like, you know, my only story like that in terms of the Mets, well, that is like more modern era, not really long ago was when R.A. Dickey was on the Mets. And this is when he was, you know, like R.A. Dickey, not like some random guy. This is R.A. Dickey, Cy Young kind of player at the time, he just went to my dad's firehouse in the Bronx and hung out with the guys for a day and signed hats for literally every single firefighter, every single piece of apparel they handed him because, you know, a ton of the firefighters had big families. And and that's the kind of guy he was, that he would just go to firehouses in New York City and and spend the day with those guys and, and liked and enjoyed being there. And I mean, the dude was one of the best pitchers in the game at the time and, and didn't have to do those kinds of things, but he wanted to. And uh, it's cool that the Mets have had a lot of players in their organization that do those things. So it's, it's kind of fun to open up with the more positive light in Mets history as the world, you know, piles on right now on the current Mets predicament. And I know you and I feel very strongly that this is an overblown story. I'm also going to sit here and still address the other side of how I feel about it. While I think this is, this is clearly if Javi Baez never answered the question that honestly, we would never even know that the thumbs down means, you know, at least in his eyes and some players are tweeting that it's not what it means to them, uh, kind of a booing back at the fans. So man, I don't even know where to start right here, Joe. I think that one, if this is, if it's actually what Javi is saying, and this is 
how they what they want to do internally to motivate themselves or or finally win in August. That would be nice, honestly. Finally win baseball games, maybe score some runs for your pitchers that you leave hung out to dry every single game. Uh, go ahead. I don't care. Do whatever you need. And this is a podcast on the flip side that you and I, we don't, we're not fans of booing. I don't go to the ballpark and, and boo because I'm a Mets fan. Now, if people want to pay their money and do that, that is your right. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a, a mightier or holier than thou fan than you because I don't boo. I don't believe in that either. Be the fan you want to be as long as you're respectful, right? I don't yell things. Uh, don't be that fan in the ballpark. But if you simply just boo, it's your right to do it. Joe and I, we've said before many times, that's not how we roll. Now, there's a lot to unravel here, and there's a lot of questions or thoughts I'm going to throw in from the listeners because I want them involved in this discussion. There's also a lot of issues here that cannot be ignored and why this is such a bad look for the franchise, number one. Number two, Javi Baez, who's going to be a free agent, and you would think uh, would like to leave an impression here considering the Mets are realistically going to be the biggest player or buyer in free agency this year. Even from a leverage standpoint, Javi Baez needs the Mets. So from a business side, a wildly idiotic move. And I do feel, on the other side, the human element of, you know, I'm not a machine, him saying that, I also understand that as this kid's sitting on his lap and they're obviously upset about the booing. There's a lot to unpack here, and this is going to be a long combo. But Joe, what is your like your initial quick thought? I know you think this is overblown as well, but there has to be some kind of feeling of like, man, as two people, you and I, who sit here and have watched a lot of bad Mets baseball in our lifetime, there's also the kind of feeling of, I'm not one of those fans that's booing, and you're so focused on that kind of fan, that doesn't feel great either. So for me, like you said, I think booing is stupid. I think it's unproductive. I don't think it does anything positive. But like you said, if you want to do it, you know, you pay your whatever amount of money to sit where you want to sit. If you want to go ahead and boo, that's your prerogative. It's it's what it is. But to me, it's just it's just so silly. I feel like everyone's kind of being immature here. If the Mets really want to boo the fans back, like you're in New York. You have to understand that playing in New York, booing comes along with it. If you don't want to deal with that, there's a reason that people say New York is a tough place to play and it's not for everybody. You have to be able to handle criticism. You're If you have a bad year, the fans in New York, especially if you're a highly paid player, they're not just going to say, that's all right. He's having a bad year. Go get him next year. Like that'll happen in Cleveland and Chicago and, and places like that. But in New York, there's an expectation to perform. So I understand that. And uh, to me, booing them back is is not productive. And fans losing their mind over this, like, can we all just grow up a little bit and can we just focus on baseball? That's what this needs to be. Like, I feel like the focus on everything, especially on Twitter, baseball is not even secondary anymore. Everything is about everything off the field. At what point did we, you know, I'm sure it's it's social media influence, but at what point did we 
go from being baseball fans to morality police and what's right to do and what's wrong to do. To me, it's just an all-around mess. The Mets look stupid. To me, the fans look stupid. Um, The whole Sandy putting out a statement. So dumb. So dumb. Sandy's done, dude. He's done. that That is dumping gasoline on a fire. Like, if you want to talk to your players, do all that, and then put out a statement and maybe get quotes from those players where they say that's not what I... Maybe Javi didn't necessarily mean it as it came off or whatever. Like, obviously, I think he did. There's, to me, often quotes are spun in this city. Um, Really hard to say that this one was spun. He kind of just straight up said it. But that statement was... It was a lunatic lunatic move to put out a statement like that, in my opinion. It's just, what, what are we doing here that you are taking this thumbs down back and forth game, which like I said, sounds like something I would do in fourth grade is like, Connor, I'll give you a thumbs down and then you give me a thumbs down back and then we'd cry about it. But like the statement was dumb. Just, it it makes it look like it's a circus and uh, the Mets are, are and will be until things change. The low hanging fruit, laughing stock of baseball. It's, it's easy. We're in New York. We're little brother to the Yankees who have 27 world championships and they're a playoff team every year. And the Mets just seemingly can't get out of their own way. So like some things change ownership and some things stay the same, the nonsense. Because just think of this year, like when this season ends, we're gonna have to do like a year recap because I can't even remember all the dumb stuff that has happened this year. It's crazy. It is. And I've gone through every single phase of this entire scandal. Like when it initially dropped, I was like, and like the first quote came out, and I think Tacoma was all over it because he was obviously watching or there for the hobby presser. I don't remember how they're even doing pressers nowadays. I think they're in person. And, you know, I thought, hey, you know what? He's right. It's It stinks that they get booed. Um, he obviously hasn't been here long enough, so he's probably hearing that from Lindor and other players about how bad the booing's been. And then when it dragged on to, like, we're booing back at the fans, I was like, how dumb is it to say that? And then I kind of sat there and said, you know what? Like, I'm usually the benefit of the doubt guy or the... You know, like the, I'm not the sky is falling all the time guy, especially like rooting for bad teams. Like I'm pretty, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not really phased by a lot of things. I, I've been disappointed that the Mets have gone down in the cellar this month um, after such a fun first half. And it stinks. There's no way around that. But I also haven't been like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're not winning the World Series now that Steve Cohen owns the team. This sucks. Like, it's more like, hey, I still am excited for the next three to five years of this team. And then I kind of went like, you know what? That's that's BS is what that is. Like, that almost made me, like, not want to watch any games the rest of the season. Then, I, you know, I go into the anger response because I'm like, I sit like a sucker And every free night I have, and even sometimes when I'm out, I'll throw it on the phone, on the app, and watch this team, and watch them lose one or two run games every single day or night this month, 
and I'm still the sucker that turns the TV on the next day to do it all over again, and you're telling me the first time you score, what, nine runs in like a month that your big play that you're that you're worried about is giving the thumbs down as a boo back at the fans and not and if Javi Baez wants to be the villain I, I don't care right great if you're the villain cool hit 10 home runs the rest of the year be the villain all you want like a heel in wrestling I don't care that's fine Francisco Lindor and Kevin Pillar but much more Lindor being on the 10-year contract needs to have a little bit more awareness in this situation. And I'm kind of shocked as you and I sit here Monday night recording this show, we have not heard from Francisco Lindor so far. I find that, yeah, I mean, you want to be the leader of this team, the face of this team for the next 10 years. You want to be, you know, David Wright, Keith Hernandez, whoever it may be. I mean, we should hear from Francisco Lindor pretty soon. That's my take on this, too. So that was the anger phase of it, where I'm like, are you kidding me? How immature is this? What do I owe this team the rest of the year? I'll be back in November for the start of the offseason. Then you come back into the phase of like, all right, this is kind of being overblown because now every non-Mets fan is saying, what a joke this franchise is. This is a joke. This is that. And Trevor May, who has been the far and away the most mature and the best of this situation by far, going on Twitter and acknowledging individual fans and having adult conversations and explaining that, his understanding of this was nothing like the way Javi Baez explained it to him and that they aren't trying to start a war with the Mets fans and they just want to win games and that they would love support. I'm all in on that and I respect that and I appreciate that and that's why I'm one of the people that when everybody likes to retweet Pete Alonzo's quotes about not worrying and this and that, Pete shows up and plays 100% every night and has hit every single month of the season so far. Alonzo's actually been a guy that backs his words while the rest of the team often has not. So there's a lot of emotions that go into this, and I've kind of come full circle back to it where I'll turn on the game, the doubleheader on Tuesday, and and I'm curious to see how they respond to this, and you know I'll, I'll let it play itself out. But overall, I think everyone's wrong in this equation, but honestly, Joe... The most annoying or frustrating thing to me is, how, why do they care? You should care about winning games right now and scratching into a seven and a half game deficit you have put yourselves in. Who the hell cares about the 300 pound fan sitting behind third baseline? booing yeah who the hell cares you are on the field you make millions of dollars you're you know you're gonna have a shot next year if it doesn't work out this year why do you care why do you care it doesn't matter what that guy thinks you want him to stop booing produce produce nothing else matters you know what cures problems drama winning that's what cures it winning and the Mets haven't done any of that this month so I'm at the point where I get everyone's view, but I still come back to, I cannot believe they even care this much about the small minority of Mets fans that actually drag their butts to City Field to boo and be angry. And to your uh, to your point about those certain kind of fans, I think a thing that is being spun wrongly here is that they're booing the entire fan base. Yes. I don't take it that way. I think they're booing the 300-pound jerk that's screaming obscenities, that's tweeting them players. You know, you've seen some of the tweets that people get. I mean, 
they tell them to kill themselves and things yeah, like no, that. No, it's harsh. Like, I get I, that. I, I do think their focus seemingly is on the overly negative, not the people that are just simply upset with performance. But we don't know that for a fact yet because, like you said, we have not heard from Francisco Lindor. And to me, he's the bigger part of this conversation because, yeah, he's here for the next ele- 10 and a half years now. Like, he's he's in this sort of long haul. And uh, if Baez is taking this a different way than he is, Lindor needs to come out, speak, say what he thinks. Because in my opinion, publicly, Lindor has handled everything the way I would have wanted him to throughout I this, agree. this season. He's been accountable, um, but he's been honest too. And I think I'm okay with that. Like, I want my players to be honest. It, to me, I have always seen fans complain that players just say the PC stuff. No one's honest. No one's transparent. And then when people are honest and transparent, people magically have a problem with it. You know, everyone had an issue when Zach Scott threw the quote unquote threw the players under the bus a couple of weeks ago by just saying the reality that this team's not hitting. They're not performing. And people were upset about it. Lindor needs to come out because let's just call it what it is. Who gives a crap about Javi Baez? He's been here for 10 minutes. He's been injured half the time he's here. He has more Strikes strikeouts. Out the other half. <laughs> yeah. He has more strikeouts than hits as a Met. And he's going to be gone in two months. You know, I think if uh, staying in New York was actually part of his plan, huh, he screwed that up yesterday because at this point, how could you possibly bring Bias back unless he issues like the most wonderful apology and then, like you said, goes and hits 12 home runs in the next month and leads the Mets maybe to almost an NL East title and like makes it competitive. Javi is a goner. So like I don't really care about Javi. Lindor's here for the long term. He needs to come out and say, look, you know, maybe this is being taken out of context. Like Stroman seemed to indicate, like Trevor May seemed to indicate. Maybe Javi has a different perspective than the other guys. And the thumbs down is not the same for each one because they've done, you know, a million rally cries this year. And Lindor hasn't performed offensively. His defense has been great. Obviously, his uh, base running is of great quality. He's been nothing at the plate and he's getting paid. You ain't getting paid $34 million to play shortstop and run the bases. You're getting paid $34 million to hit. And then also, you know, do that stuff secondary, but offense is what you're being paid for. And he's not doing it. Uh, That's going to lead to people being unhappy. It happened to Mike Piazza. It happened to Carlos Beltran. It's happened to everybody who comes into this city. It's, part of the Derek deal Jeter, man yeah Derek Jeter like it doesn't matter how good you are how long you've been here it means nothing if you're performing the fans love you if you're not they don't and Lindor will win them over by performance at least that general fan base that we're talking about for me I want to see him speak to the media and I want to see what he has to say I want him to clear it up or say whatever's on his mind and you know i think we can revisit kind of our thoughts after we hear from lindor because i can't imagine the mets doing anything but putting lindor behind the microphone tomorrow it's a day off today uh we're recording on monday i know lindor was at the u.s open today and you know 
you gave fans a thumbs up while he was signing autographs and yada yada, had Mr. Smile on. But tomorrow, when they're back at the stadium and preparing, uh, they better be scheduling a segment for Francisco Lindor to answer questions. And they're going to be harsh questions and pointed questions because, let's call it what it is, the media's eating this up. I mean... Look at the back pages of the Post, the Daily News, Mets telling the fans to go to hell. Like, again, overreaction theater. But Lindor has the answer to us. That's that is part of being, you know, one of the faces of the franchises. You have to answer for things like this, things that are maybe not on the field. It's more off the field stuff. David Wright used to always have to answer for all the dumb crap that went on in his in his era as quote unquote captain. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, but I, I just, I just want to, I wish we could just focus on baseball. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. And I think, you know, all in all, one last thing that left me, you know, almost feeling bad in a way is I don't think anyone looks dumber Right, like more clueless in this, excluding Javi Baez, which I still can't believe he he said what he said. Like you could do that, I just don't know why you would say it uh, that bluntly. You know, even if you wanted to wait till after the season, you're gone. Like who? Like right now, man, is it rough for Louis Rojas? I mean, I and you and I have been in his corner all year. This is one of those things where you're just looking at the reality, of the situation. I will be shocked if, assuming the Mets don't get back in this thing, if Steve Cohen doesn't just really start to clean house after this year where it's Rojas, Alderson, I think Zach Scott will stay in a more limited role that he was originally hired to be in. Uh, he was originally hired to be an assistant GM with a heavy focus on analytics. You know, where they'll have a much different look, whether it's at manager, NGM, or VP of baseball ops. I just, it's tough, man. I, I don't think Rojas has done a bad job this year. And I know a lot of people out there do not agree, and that's fine. Everybody has their points. A lot of these guys are just not hitting fastballs right down the middle, and that's not on Rojas. And the Mets hung around with barely AAA players at uh, during a month or two that I didn't think they would, and, and then they collapsed later on. But, man... It is such a bad look for your manager, and it's I don't really think it's his fault. Could he be a little bit more probably, you know, of a a drill sergeant in the clubhouse where they wouldn't they wouldn't cross him like this or whatever it is? But man, when Javi says that in a presser, and then Rojas is next, and they tell him that, and he says I didn't know about that. That is so tough. It is such a bad look where. You know, I feel for him. I think it's a really weak move. Like, no matter what in the world you think of your boss, you you don't do that in public. Unless there's, like, an ethical issue, right? Like, a legitimate ethical issue. Then you come out and bring it to public, and that I understand. But I don't even think Javi realized what he did to Rojas in that. And... That oh that's a that you owe an apology for that honestly quite frankly because I don't know if Rojas is going to be a, a great manager going forward. I don't think he'll be the Mets manager uh, next year, and I think this is probably a huge part of that. 
And, and I just think it's it's not being discussed, but it's it's honestly a really weak side of all of this. I'd be very surprised at this point if Rojas is back as Mets manager next year. And, you know, the Javi thing, that obviously didn't help because Rojas genuinely seemingly didn't know. And now he looks like an idiot. And the reality is it's just a further – it's more – communication issues it's what the Mets have always been the GM wouldn't say the right thing say to the manager what the deal was it's just been constant there's a disconnect between the front office the manager seat the players one of the things that you and I talked about when you know shortly after we had Thornton McHenry on for Steve Cohen signing we're like what's one of the things we want to do we want to see improved communication throughout the organization and that has not changed one iota I don't know who to blame. I don't know whose fault it is. Everyone. But but everyone, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Like I it's just it's absurd that these things continue to happen. There's no communication. This you know, it goes to the statement by Sandy. Like they felt that it was very important to put out a statement that we're not gonna let people, you know, players talk to our fans like that or whatever and she's like and we will talk to the players how about you talk to the players and then you put out a stupid statement for us like it's just everything is so backwards here and it's been that way for years and years like i don't know what's going to change it but you're going to see wholesale changes within the mets this offseason front office coaching staff players on the field and I hope Steve Cohen realizes that communication needs to be fixed. So I don't know if they need training on how to talk to each other or they need to hire just the right people that are going to communicate things down the chain. Because how often is Rojas shown that, you know, and again, like I said, this is not necessarily his fault per se, but he looks dumb because of it. How many times does Rojas seemingly have no idea what's going on with an injury to somebody? Yeah, too often. And, like, it, it makes no sense, and that's, to me, one of the biggest thing that things that need to be fixed. Of course, they need better players. They need guys that hit with runners in scoring position. They need competent front office. They need a manager that, you know, doesn't put his foot in his mouth and... All that stuff's important, but an organization needs to be a cohesive unit, and the Mets are not that in any way, shape, or form, and that needs to be fixed ASAP. You're absolutely right. So before we completely shut down this topic and get close to the end of our show here, I do want to read in some of the uh, questions, and, and a lot of these were honestly great. And, and the ones we didn't read, we, we already kind of summed up with our thoughts here. So this one is from Brandon Klossner. He said, Lindor was my favorite non-Mets player for the last few years, beyond happy when we signed him. Obviously, I'm, I was disappointed by his performance, but I never lost faith. I'm struggling with how I feel about him going forward. Thoughts? I, I genuinely feel the same way because you and I discussed on this show how badly we wanted Lindor. I have still not lost faith. I think that he's a better player than what he's shown this year. I think his defense obviously has been very, very good. He has not hit. Um, I think he, this is just the eye test. I haven't even looked at the splits. He seems like such a better hitter from the right side of the plate than the left side. So I don't know what's going on there. But overall, it's, you can take a rough start in New York, but the extra stuff on the side like this 
it makes you think a lot. And that's why I said I want to see him address this. And he's been very accountable this year. I know he cares almost too much, right? Like not doing a rehab assignment was caring too much. He felt like he needs to get back on the field to help the team win. Well, man, you've been out five and a half weeks. It's pretty tough to hit major league pitching in the, in the you know, snappier fingers. So I'm not out on Lindor. It's not that kind of thing at all. I think that he can be a great New York Met for a very long time. But this is a true test of like, man, your best buddy that you vouched for to be brought here, trading a former very recent first-round pick to get him here, realistically before all this, was probably in the free agent plans, just made you look like an idiot to your next decade employer. How are you going to respond? Are you going to not only improve on the field, but address it? Address it like an adult? Because I know, you know, guys like David Wright, Jose Reyes... Guys like that, when they were here, would would address that and hold themselves accountable. And I, I'm not out on Lindor. I'm not thrilled with Lindor right now. I, I want to see what what's next. I don't think I'm out on him at all. I think a lot of people have come to New York and struggled in their first year and then picked it up the next year. And then, you know, everything seemingly worked from there. Um, his adjustment obviously has not been smooth. He hasn't hit. He had the long-term injury. He now has this looming over his head. And I understand people questioning him. Uh, I I think there was an expectation when he was brought in, and not just brought in. It's the contract that comes along with it, obviously. Like, the if they traded for Lindor and he was a rental, the conversation would be totally different. It would be like, well... Are we still going to sign this guy for the long term? But the fact that he was traded for, given $340 million, which, like it or not, if you get $340 million, you're expected to be a leader on the team. And in a lot of ways, we were complimentary of his leadership throughout the season. He was always help, you know, uh, juicing guys up. He was always you know, first one to the mound when a pitcher was going through it and there was a mound visit. Lindor was the first one there. Um, he would always help guys in the dugout. Uh, he had a, let's, you know, probably a fight with Jeff McNeil and made up a lie and made light of it. So that way we could just get past it, like the rat raccoon thing. And to me, he was pushing all the right buttons off the field to the point where I think multiple times on this podcast, I was like, Lindor seems like he could handle New York fine. It's just a bad year offensively for him. Um, he's having the best defensive year almost of his career. Uh, base running is good, like I said. How is he going to handle hard. this? It plays hard, hustles. Like he, He's not a prima donna type of player. He's flashy, sure, but he's not really a prima donna, or at least it doesn't come off that way. How does he handle this first off-the-field issue that is coming to his attention? That, I think, is going to be a good test. And then, obviously, in 2022, does he become the Francisco Lindor that we all expected when we got him? Which, to a degree, I think fans had higher expectations than what Lindor is as a player. But, man, he's got to be you know, a 270 hitter that gets on base at like a 350 clip and hits 30 bombs and steals 20 bases. Like That's the kind of player that they need him to be. And that's what you paid him to be. So 
he's he's got a lot of pressure on him and uh this offseason he's going to be a huge talking point and next spring he needs to come in to Port St. Lucie ready to roll and you know he can't have a slow start again otherwise dude like it or not you're going to get booed you're making 34 million dollars a year you, you can't hit 200 no you can't especially with how dramatic that contract negotiation was so I'm with everything you said there, Joe. There just it, there it has to be results, and that kind of turns to this next question from Robert Z. It kind of made me laugh. He said, "Thoughts on the hobby bias heel turn? Does he need more than a promo? Should he have attacked someone's steel chair, perhaps?" I said this. I hope Hobby Bias hits five home runs this week and flips off the crowd. I don't care. Hobby Bias obviously uh, is not a um, does not have his master's degree in PR. I think we've learned that. Javi Baez plays 120 miles an hour every night, okay? He does. He plays really hard. He's flashy. He has absolutely no comm- no idea of the strike zone or how to take a pitch. He's pretty clutch. I mean, he's had some big hits for the Mets in a very short time. He's also struck out a million times. I think there's no effort issue with Baez. And if he wants to be a villain his final month here... Go ahead. I don't care. I'm not emotional like that, where I'm like, oh my God, I wish Javi Baez liked me because I'm a Mets fan. Like, I do not care. Just hit home runs and play gold glove defense and play hard. And he's done those things. Now, he's also struck out a ton. And I I think I just look at it and I go, I just, I really don't care. Because I'm with you. Like, I, I love Javi Baez, right? I like watching him play. I think that somehow it seems like his ability uh, of seeing the strike zone has gotten significantly worse recently. I'm sure with the analytics on him, guys just know how to pitch him. I, I don't think it's um, yeah, it's called he, don't throw a strike. Like, yeah, it's I mean you don't gonna, need analytics. <laughs> he's gonna set a career high in strikeouts, which is impressive because he struck out 167 times in 2018. You know, but he also had an 881 OPS that year. So. I just look at it and go, man, I like him. I liked the move. Maybe I was wrong. I can live with that. I don't necessarily, I'm not like jumping at them to give him a big contract or anything like that anymore. So if he wants to be a villain, I don't care. Just play good. Play well. And we'll see where it goes. What do you think of this whole thing with him? Lindor matters more than him. Who the hell cares? Yeah, 100% matters more. But Rob Z is a big wrestling fan. Me and him go back and forth on WWE and, and everything on Twitter from time to time. So this is a this is a funny one that he sent. Like, honestly, this storyline feels like a really bad storyline from Monday Night Raw. Like, one that wrestling <laughs> fans will be ripping the shreds. Like, it's it's just so terrible. But, yeah, I again, I'm sort of with you that... I don't care if Javi Baez likes me. I don't care if Javi Baez knows who I am. I don't care if he hears me. Like that, I watch the Mets to see the Mets win. Everything else is noise. That's what it comes down to. And to me, this is a whole bunch of noise that's just weighing down a losing team. And it's just, it's just a stuff's compiling. That's what's happening. And that often happens when things are not successful. This starts to go, and people get frustrated. Because here's the thing. You don't think Javi Baez realizes he's a free agent in a month or two months? You think he wants to stink? 
No, of course he doesn't. He wants to perform because he wants that contract, whether that's from the Mets, whether he goes back to the Cubs, whether he signs in Kansas City where no one cares about him anymore. Like, these guys all want to perform. So that's that's part of, like, my thought process when it comes to not booing. The only thing to me that's acceptable for booing is lack of effort. If someone If someone's not trying, feel free. But by all count, these players are trying to do their thing. They're just being wildly unsuccessful at it. And booing them is not going to make them play better. Um, so it's it, it's a it's a really tough thing. But, yeah, Baez, I hope that Baez, the next time he speaks, you know, English is his second language. You know, I don't want an excuse for him. But maybe what he meant to say wasn't exactly what ended up coming out of his mouth. Uh, I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy. I'm not trying to make a reason for what he said because it was obviously wrong. But, like, there has to be something here because there's, to me, there's no way that what he said and then Stroman, who Marcus Stroman doesn't give a crap. He will say exactly what's on his mind. Whatever's on his mind, yep. Yeah, and the fact that he is kind of shooting down what it is and Trevor May, who's clearly, like, the adult in the room, is shooting down... Maybe, just maybe, this is Javi just said the wrong thing and didn't and didn't mean it how he said it. And, you know, unfortunately, you can't change the words that you said. But I'm hopeful that the next time you hear from Javi, it's I don't even care about an apology. Like, to me, that's that's so elementary. I don't need him to apologize to me for what he said. But an explanation like that's not what I meant. This is what I meant. Something like that. And just be like, I wasn't trying to upset you, that kind of stuff. And I don't know. That's a long winded way of saying like, I don't care either. Just win baseball games. It's what I watch for, man. Yeah, Uh, it's I, I at this point just want him to buy in. I don't want the apology. I don't want. Like we said at the beginning, I care way more about Francisco Lindor in all of this, who needs to be an adult and and show that like what I don't know what the heck my friend did here, and I'm sorry for the confusion. With Javi, dude, what's a what's a really good heel walk up song he can use, Joe? I, that's what I'm gonna ask you to think on in the next sixty seconds. Why I and NWO. Yeah. Oh, great. Perfect. Dude, get an NWO cutoff, take batting practice in it, spray paint home plate. I don't care. Walk (laughs) up with the NWO song, go all in, hit a home run. Maybe don't flip off the crowd because there's kids there. And, you know, and, you know, this is another thing. Like, I know people are like, and we say it's a little bit of an overreaction, but also, like, if you're factoring in like you bring your kid to the ballpark to go see Francisco Lindor like that's another big part of like why Steve Cohen should understand it would be upset about things like this maybe don't flip off the crowd as much as I would love to see something funny like that but egg on the crowd like be, do a do do a yes. Scott Wall Scott Hall walk as you're going over home plate I don't know if that means anything to you but if you like wrestling you know what I'm talking about when I say a Scott Hall walk go YouTube it then right now yeah <laughs> this would Connor work. you go you go YouTube it <laughs> this would work for yeah I need to after this show this would work for Javi Baez right now and, and if anyone else on the team that's not going to be here for the next 10 years wants to do it too I don't care go ahead just score runs. Score runs. I the, do you know not what, care. The, 
the next thing could be um, my buddy Keith Keith Blacknick, media goon. Uh, he's posted a picture a few times. Make the MWO, the Mets World Order. Just knock sure. off the logo and be the MWO and have some fun with it. Because at the end of the day, it's a game. Let's try to have some fun with it and hit some damn home runs and win. <laughs> yes, laugh at yourself. It's okay to do that, especially if you actually turn it into uh, something fun. The fans get behind and you win. So... With that being said, I wish we could have gotten to more questions. I'm going to pull some of these into next week's show. I see our guy Steve Miller has a great one in here about Nimmo. I loved and appreciated and read everyone's thoughts on this situation and kind of incorporated them into the show. Joe, episode 57, the Johan episode, closing thoughts. Let's just hope we could get past this nonsense and it's... Uh... It's a non-story in the coming days, and then come this off-season, you know, it's it's a distant memory. It's just a blip on the radar because I can't deal with this anymore. <laughs> I, I I need to I need to see the Mets make the ch- necessary changes to become a winner in 2022. But man, I'm I'm kind I'm kind of already over the whole booing each other thing. But hope hope hopefully with the Marlins coming in. The Mets can just beat down the Marlins and fans' minds will change. You know, they're going to be loud booing tomorrow. I think that goes without saying that tomorrow's game is going to be a whole bunch of boos, especially uh, towards Javi Baez. But win baseball games and people's minds will change because all Mets fans want is to not be the little brother of New York that stink every year, that do dumb things, that get made fun of, that... You know, the national media, like, what a joke. Like, the way they the way they cover the Mets is just wildly unfair. Uh, it's just, like I said, they're the low-hanging fruit. So just win baseball games, and, yeah, I guess that's it. Somewhere out there, Buster only just got a tweet off about Chili Davis. All right, everyone, if you want more <laughs> That's a Mets podcast, stick around. Had a great conversation with Tom Schieber of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we'll catch you next week. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posts at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and condition apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today.
Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Welcome back, everyone. Really excited to have on a senior curator from the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's Tom Schieber. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of different great, not just Mets things, Hall of Fame related, but it, Hall of Fame in general, a pretty special place. So, Tom, how you doing, man? I, I appreciate your time today. I'm doing fine. Thank you very much, Connor. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to start off and give our listeners um, a, a basic rundown. What is your day-to-day like? I think people hear Curator, and it's it's mentioned throughout a lot of games. It's obviously mentioned through the offseason. But what is your actual day-to-day like being a senior curator of the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, you know, I get that question a, a decent amount. And I got to say that I, I think it's not uh, dissimilar to a lot of other jobs in that um, the job that you write down on your piece, on a piece of paper, like if you could come up with the core concept of what your job is, uh, and I'm happy to talk about that, you end up not doing that as much as much as you, you would think. So, you know, all sorts of people have jobs, and then they end up doing all these tangential things uh, for much of their day. <laughs> um, so, but I will talk about the core concept of what I do, although my day is filled with all sorts of different and the core concept as senior curator is that I head up the department of the curatorial department here at the Hall of Fame. And what curators do is they tell stories. Um, now, with my job uh, and uh, the rest of the curatorial team, all of our stories are somehow connected to baseball, sometimes very directly. It's pretty obvious. Other times, uh, the stories uh, are sort of tangential to baseball, but we're at the Baseball Hall of Fame. I've got to weave in baseball somewhere, and, and that's my expertise. I love baseball, and so I'm happy to, to do that. But it's storytelling. Um, it's just done in a particular way. And the example that I tend to give to folks is that um, if you're a, a novelist, you're, right, you're, you're telling stories, but that's a very particular way to do it. It's with a book, which means basically words on paper. Um, but if you're a movie maker, you use film, to capture images and you edit it together and you hopefully get someone to show your film. And that's another form of storytelling, right? Not words on paper there. It's, it's moving images on a screen. They're both viable forms of storytelling. Well, my form of storytelling in general, uh, at least with is, is exhibits. Um, I actually do other forms of storytelling too, because I, I do help put together books or I do um, sometimes give talks. That's storytelling of a different kind, but the core concept for a museum is to tell stories through exhibits. And that what that means basically is you show objects that are, have special meaning and we usually give you what that meaning is. And through those objects being on exhibit, we weave a story. So maybe it's Tani Agee's glove from the 69 World Series, or maybe it's uh, the jersey that Mike Piazza wore when he hit that the dramatic home run uh, you know, week after 9-11. Um, so we, we would put them in the context of an exhibit, maybe a great moments in Mets history would be sort of an obvious one, but maybe it's the sort of exhibit on, on the World Series, and there's Mets moments there. Um, well, we tell stories about whatever topic we're talking about through objects that uh, are either in our collection or, in some rare cases, loans to the museum. But it's storytelling. 
Yeah, I think that's a great way to sum it up. And I think that, you know, hearing you bring up Mets specific uh, potential or actual exhibits right now, what is that process like? Because I think as baseball fans, we all sit there and appreciate the moments. And there's absolutely moments in time where you you know right away. This is something that needs to be preserved. This is something that, in your case, your job needs to be expanded, right? It's not just a 30-second a clip on social media that you like to revisit every single year or something along the lines of that. So say, for instance, something like a jersey, uh, like the Piazza 911 jersey, what is the process like of the player finishing that game and that item getting from the clubhouse to you guys and then obviously out on a floor? Right. So it's a, it's, um, it's an interesting process. Uh, um, so let's see where is the best way to start. Uh, first of all, you should know that it's not objects come to the museum in many different ways. W- one way, and maybe it's the most obvious is a player, uh, does something on the field and then donates an object related to that to us. But we get things from fans. We get things from col- collectors. Uh, sometimes it's not from the current season. Sometimes it's from 150 years ago. Um, Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone who's walking down the street and they found something. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways that things are collected and eventually make our way, uh, make make their way here to the Hall of Fame. But specifically regarding, let's say something happens on a major league field, and uh, we are interested in uh, talking about that in the museum. Um, so what we would do is we would make a request either to the team or to the player or some combination thereof and um, say, would you be interested in donating uh, an object? We might toss out some ideas, but one key part of this is that it is in fact a request. It's not a demand. Um, We're, you know, we we say, please. (laughs) And we totally understand if the things sometimes don't come our way, that that's understandable, but we're not part of major league baseball. We're the, the national baseball hall of fame and museum is a nonprofit 501c3 educational institution that's private. Uh, we are not part of NLB. So when we contact a club, a player, um, it's a request. And additionally, and this is something that is not very common with museums, we do not purchase objects. Most museums have a budget, that uh, an acquisitions budget. Um, we do not have that. Ever since we started collecting in the mid-1930s, Things have come to us as donations. And by the way, once they come here, they stay here uh, in terms of we do not de-accept what's called deaccession. Then. We do not uh, get rid of them by selling them off. Um, so we're not paying any money and we're not making any money off an object. Um, so we would make a request and uh, hopefully come to some sort of agreement of an object coming our way. Has anything ever ended up on your desk that you either were like, wow, we had no idea where this was or we'd been looking for this or, oh my God, I, I this is from, you know, could be 80, 80 years ago with how deep baseball history is, even longer than that, that you, you when it was in front of you, you kind of couldn't believe what you were witnessing. Uh, so you mean th- things that are already in our collection or things that have just come to us? Things that have come to you, where whether it was you know, donated from a, a relative of the family member that had it, or it was just found in a, like if things could be found in a storage unit or anything that's like a, it took a rare path rather than just listen, point A, the clubhouse or the player right, to right. point B, you guys. Sure. Sure. That happens. I mean, we, we, um, we have objects that come our way that, uh, 
come like yes like you said a family member we've had things come from from ball players uh when they were uh over 90 years old they said you know what i've kept this this whole time Mm. i want to go to the museum because i want to share it with hundreds of thousands of fans who come to the museum every year and um and that's great we love that generosity we're always very thankful um and uh yeah sometimes they're they're they come uh it's, it's surprising i mean um we have a a trophy that came to us and it was let me see if i could trace remember how this works it was a uh, a trainer for the the new york giants actually the old new york giants guy who was a trainer for the giants he passed away in the early 1920s but it remained in his family with his wife his wife was later employed as a maid at a family and that and when she passed away the family kept the object and then as i recall it was then handed over to a neighbor <laughs> i mean oh you gotta God. you need a scorecard just to keep track yeah. of where something <laughs> came from it's I, I i won't go into the details of it it's, it's a it's sort of off off topic here but it's an incredibly awesome artifact just independent of the of the route but it's kind of amazing it went anywhere because it's so far removed from the you know where it originated so um sometimes that happens and uh it makes it sometimes a little bit challenging because one thing you want to try and do is with every object you want to do your best to truly understand the story behind that object and i'm not just talking about is this the uh the bat that was used by uh you know todd zeal to to hit you know particular home run it's what else do I know about this bat? Or what else can I figure out about this bat? Because sometimes there's other stories that we never even thought of before that pop out of an artifact if you just do the um, nitty gritty research. And so a lot of what we do, you ask what my job is. One of the parts of my job, a part of storytelling, is to do research. I can't tell a story if I don't know the story. I can't tell the story if I don't know some nuances to the story. Maybe I know I think I know a story, but then when I research an object, I get a little angle to it that it's like, God, I never knew that before. And that, and sometimes that object takes on a whole new meaning. Um, and those are, that's really exciting when that happens. So this is a Mets podcast and you and I were talking about this off air before we started recording. And, you know, one of the main questions that I had, and I know our listeners that haven't been to the hall of fame or might be considering a trip are probably wondering what are the Mets moments or materials that I need to see that they either wouldn't think of or they, they have spent on their bucket list for as long as time? What do you think stands out uh, from the Mets franchise in the Hall of Fame? Well, so the Mets obviously have had, had a long history. What are we talking now? Uh, 60 years, right? Yeah. Something like that. So um, there's a lot. <laughs> we have a lot of Mets objects in the collection. A lot of Mets objects on exhibit right now and that's true of all 30 major league clubs and and uh, just as a quick aside by the way we're not just major league baseball here at, at the hall of fame we talk about all things baseball whether it's major league baseball or minor league baseball or women in baseball or uh um you know, baseball you have negro in, leagues in, uh absolutely. materials awesome absolutely and negro leagues that are now considered major leagues uh, some of the leagues are not considered major leagues major leagues pre-Negro League segregated baseball. That's a very, very rich story of which I think we've gotten a little bit of a highlight moment when Major League Baseball made their announcement in December to recognize a subset of the Negro Leagues as major. But it's a bigger, bigger story than that. So anyway, we're all things baseball. However, 
the let's face it, the majority of what you're going to see at this museum is Major League Baseball related because that's the pinnacle of the sport, and we and it's it's um, a focus of, of our collecting policy is so that all, is to talk about all of baseball, but yes, you want to talk about the top level. Now, of those 30 major league clubs that are still in existence today, one of them is the Mets. And what we, the challenge we had is uh, we wanted to put together uh, sort of a cheat sheet for visitors who come here and they say, you know what, I, I like all of baseball, but I really want to make sure I, I don't miss key artifacts from my team that I root for, whether it's the Mets or the Diamondbacks or the Padres, whatever team it might be. So we made a thing called the starting nine uh, for all 30 major league clubs. And it's a list of nine objects that you want to make sure when you leave Cooperstown, you didn't miss seeing them. Now, there's more for most of those teams. Uh, actually, for all of those teams, there's more than nine objects on display. And we hope you get to see all of them. But we don't have all the, uh, we didn't want to have this massively huge comprehensive list of here's the 500 objects of the of the Phillies that you need to see while you're here. That's an impossibility. So we went ahead and whittled it down and made some very difficult choices. Um, but we wanted to you know come up with you, you got to see these things. So and so for example, one of our little behind the scenes rules was, you know, uh, we we thought let's let's show this really cool Tom Seaver. Uh, it's on on exhibit, but let's let's on our starting line. We're going to show uh, talk about the Tom Seaver's cap from his 19 strikeout game back in April of 1970. So he struck out 19 Padres, of which the last 10 were in a row, and that's a record that has since been tied now twice. Which is tied. absurd. Wait, yeah, well, that's that's the world we're living in now. Yes. Right? Um, but you know that cap is on exhibit, and um we wanted to uh, make sure people don't miss that. So we put that on our starting nine. There's a lot of other Tom Seaver objects, for example, on exhibit, but we thought, you know what, let's spread the love a little bit. So we'll just do one Tom Seaver item on here. But we hope that every, that Mets fans will see the many other Seaver related objects here. But that, so that would be one of them. Uh, another one is a, the helmet from David Wright's final major league game. You know, it, it was, he he wore that helmet when he played that final game and he walked for the final time, which by the way, uh, 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 that was uh, extended his club record of most times reaching base. Uh, mm. no, no, I think it's actually, yeah. When, yeah. He reached base for, for, I don't know. It's like 25, 2600 times. I can't remember what the exact number is. So, you know, we have that helmet. Um, and, um, another one is the, the jersey that Pedro Martinez wore for his 3000 strikeout. He did that when he was with the Mets. So there's a lot, uh, of, of great objects. And we just highlight nine of them in this starting nine lineup, which you could, by the way, you can get online. If you just go to baseballhall.org slash nine, that'll, then you just look for your team and you can click on Mets and you'll get your, your nine Mets item. But you could also, if you just walk in the in the museum, we'll hand you a, a printout as well. And it takes you throughout the museum, and it focuses on Mets only object. That's pretty awesome. You it know, is being cool. a lifelong Mets fan, that kind of stuff is uh, some memories that I've sat and watched on TV or listened on the radio, and some that like Seavers I, I did not witness. So I think it's it's interesting in that regard. So 
that sounds really fun, especially the starting night. I know it's not easy, but I think it's fun to be a part of a process of, yeah. you know, shaping, not shaping, but really determining, you know, some baseball history that stands above others. So with that being said, what's your favorite part about your job? Well, there's a lot. We don't have enough time to go over it all, but it's <laughs> great. Uh, I think if I have to boil it down to one thing, it's going to be very general, which is uh, I get to dabble in baseball history every single day, mm-hmm. and they pay me to do this, right? So, uh, you know, the only thing better, and let's face it, this is true, I think, of anybody who's into baseball, is if you got to play baseball and they paid you, right? But the vast majority of us don't have that ability. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, so, you know, let, let's face it, Connor, in any job that you take, I mean, really, any job that you take, there's going to be days where things don't go great for whatever reason. You, you screwed up or, or or someone else screwed up or whatever. Well, in my job, when, when, when you know, I have a, a day that's not going as well as I'd like it to go, I can step back and go, yeah, but it's all, in, it's all having to do with baseball and baseball history. How bad can this be? And it's not, you know. So when you look at the big picture, I always get to say, you know what? I'm having a bad day doing baseball history. That's actually a pretty good day. <laughs> that's really cool. And I think that's pretty much everyone's dream is to uh, work in something where they can look at it like that at the end of the day. Yeah. So the last one for me, Tom, is I would imagine you guys have quite the outline of, you know, things that are ahead. What are some of the biggest things that are on your radar that you would love to, you know, we, we know are going to happen, right? We were waiting for Miguel Cabrera's 500th home run for how right. long we were just sitting here every day going, okay, it's going to happen here. What are some things like that, that you're counting down the clock, they're going to happen and you would love a piece of it to be a part of the hall. Well, uh, you know, Miggy's not far away from 3000 hits either. It's he's, crazy. I don't think he's going to yeah. get there. This, I don't think it's going to happen this year. He really has to go on a tear. But, uh, you know, that's out there as well. Um, you know, I don't have a, a list right in front of me. We meet on a regular basis, uh, specifically throughout the regular season, as well as a little bit before the season. And we talk about this very thing. We have actually very well organized. That's a, a colleague of mine who runs the meeting, um, you know, it's usually around once a month. So maybe sometimes we'll go five weeks later or something like that. And that is a meeting where we get together and talk about what's on the horizon what can we see happening or where are there some significant holes in our collection and, and but it's all this particular meeting is specifically related to this season because we like i said I'm, I'm thinking about baseball history from all time but these meetings are, are specifically related to asks that we might make for this season and um so we often look at milestones we know a person's approaching 3,000 hits or 500 home runs or in Mickey's case, both. Um, and so we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on those, uh, on those and other, other things like, you know, uh, a milestone stolen base Remember stolen bases, not too many of those anymore, but we still keep an eye on those. <laughs> uh, so we do that kind of thing. But, you know, of course, a huge part of baseball, is not knowing when history is going to happen, right? You can see when something's sort of on the radar and should happen fairly soon, or you can kind of do a better job of predicting if it's like when Cal Ripken was getting close to breaking Lou Gehrig's mark, you could, you could target a date, uh, barring rainouts and stuff, right? Um, but sometimes it's, you know, when, when uh, 
when unassisted triple play happens, nobody's predicting that this guy's about his due for an unassisted triple play. So sometimes you have to react on the fly. Um, and, you know, some of them are no-brainers. So it's an unassisted triple play. We're going to each, basically every major league team knows we're going to give them a call. They, they, they're already, they've already got to figure it out with great relationship with all the different clubs. But sometimes there's an object that we might want and they never would have thought about it as being significant. But we, we were saying, well, here's why, here's the story we're going to tell. Here's why we think it's important. Um, and, uh, sometimes, um, it's, you know, it's not particularly, uh, easy to figure out these things. And then other times, you know, another challenge that we have, quite frankly, is sometimes you get a ball player who's a great ball player that we really want to tell their story, but they never had a single signature moment. You know, they didn't have a four home run game or they didn't, uh, you know, lead the league in batting, uh, or whatever. And yet, if you only wait for these signature moments, some guys are going to slip through the cracks, uh, or maybe you, they did have a signature moment, but for whatever reason, nothing came our way. That happens. Um, and yet we still want to tell that player uh, the story of that player because they had a fantastic career. Sometimes we got challenges like that. So um, uh, there's a lot of subtleties and nuances to collecting. You know, I'll end with this. There are times that people come to the museum and they'll say, what do you have from so-and-so or do you have the the glove from this guy's great catch? And we'll say no. And they'll say, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have that? <laughs> <laughs> like it's that easy. Right? And it's not easy. It's not easy to uh, to acquire objects when it's an ask. And we understand that ballplayers want to keep something or a team might want to keep something. Um, so sometimes it's a, it's just because it's a great moment doesn't necessarily mean it's going to or an important moment or a great story doesn't necessarily mean that we can easily tell that story because we do rely on the generosity of folks donating objects. And that doesn't always happen, but you, but I will say I'm absolutely just uh, thankful that it happens as often as it does. Tom, it's been really great talking to you. Really appreciate your time. And uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame is just one of those legendary things in, in all of American sports. So uh, it's been really nice talking to you. Thanks once again. Well, I hope to see you come out here sometime, Connor. Yes, you will hear from me. I promise that. Um, if I, if and when I do. I'm an upstate New York guy, so I think it's long overdue that I've yeah. never been out there yet. Come on out. The sun is shining, flowers are blooming, birds are singing, and everything seems fresh and new. It's the best time of the year. It's time for spring savings at your local Publix store. Pick up a spring savings coupon book from the Publix Information Center at the store's entrance, or ask customer service for a copy. You can save over $90 on your favorite brands, including GSK, Energizer, Colgate, Palmolive, Kimberly Clark, and more. But hurry, the sale only lasts through April 15th. Happy spring savings from Publix.